is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Rob Archer. And today for Charles Feldman, remember uh, back when marijuana was legalized, one of the big selling points for it in California was that it would generate a lot of tax money. But that's also a problem. Cannabis businesses say too many taxes and regulations have made it too hard to turn a profit. The state is now deciding to help cutting a cultivation tax. We're going to go in-depth into how the industry can survive. The pandemic's brought about a lifeguard shortage, especially at community pools. And some local scientists are working to help investors avoid cryptocurrency pump-and-dump schemes. Inflation's been blamed on corporate greed, but some economists dispute that, saying it's not really what's happening. Bad day for former President Trump when it comes to the 2020 election investigations. A key White House lawyer agrees to talk to the January 6th committee. Illinois' red flag law and background checks, they couldn't stop the suspected uh, July 4th parade shooter from buying guns legally. We'll take a look at that, and we'll look into whether Ukraine's military can push Russia out of the Donbass region, or if Russia is now control of the war there. We start with cannabis and taxes. Dan Summer is an agricultural economist with the Cannabis and Hemp Research Center at UC Davis, and author of the book, Can Legal Weed Win? The Blunt Realities of Cannabis Economics, and I, I love the pun there. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, so here's the deal with the uh, cannabis uh, uh, industry. A lot of people have said that, you know, they're making so much money. This this complaint that we can't make any profit because of too many taxes is just because they're money grabbing. Is that the case or is it really a case of they might be being taxed out of business? Uh, they have a real challenge. Uh, that is, we're talking about the legal cannabis business. Uh, 70, 75% of sales are in the illegal side of the market. They pay no taxes. They follow no regulations. So if your primary competitor has an advantage like that, it's tough. Uh, We don't want to confuse total revenue with net revenue. That is, uh, uh, selling something at a loss doesn't, uh, doesn't keep you in business. And it's certainly true the legal cannabis business has lots of revenue. Whether they have any profit is is more of a challenge. So the governor signed this law to make some changes when it comes to the tax uh, situation and also, um, you know, provide some more avenues for for other businesses to get started and cut some of this red tape. Do you see this actually working or it's been years and years and it's been so hard? Who wants to jump into this business right now? Yeah, so it's a challenge. The uh, the cannabis cultivation tax, they call it, had very particular features that made it. I don't know, best word I would use is silly. Uh, it, it charged uh, a tax per unit of cannabis measured by the pound or by the ounce. But of course, there's all kinds of quality. So outdoor cannabis grown from a normal grower might sell for $300 a pound with a tax of 160 on top of that per pound. Some indoor cannabis might sell for $2,000 a pound and it sta- paid the same $160. So just the difference like that makes all uh, uh, means the tax didn't, it really penalized certain growers and didn't penalize others very much. So it was unfair at, at, at its very foundation. And then when you put a tax on at the cultivation level and you start adding markups on top of that or multiply it by markups, the, the effect of that tax can grow and grow. So it makes sense Tax the product if you need to, but tax it at a place where you can you, it can make some sense. And the excise tax is still in place. We're still charging 15% of retail price. And now it's 
that's another reform. Uh, they're actually charging a direct uh, excise tax of 15% at retail, which makes all the sense in the world. That's the way to do it. So it cleaned up the tax uh, features. Is that enough? Most people would say probably not. Uh, very quickly, right after it was legalized, one of the problems that the uh, cannabis industry ran into was banking. Uh, a lot of banks would refuse to do business with them because it was still illegal at the federal level and in many other states. I know uh, California made some steps to kind of help in that regard. Have those steps helped? Oh, maybe around the margins, but the basic problem is still there. And that is that uh, under uh, federal law and the Supreme Court refused to hear a case uh, challenging this, a case out of Colorado. So it's continuing. Under federal law, banks quite reasonably say, gee, we get a federal charter. Uh, the feds, even though they're not doing much to enforce it, uh, still have on the books that this is an illegal substance. So, you know, the typical federal bank, which is almost all of them, uh, says, no, thank you. We don't want to take the risk. So it's a challenge. Dan, Dan Sumner, agricultural economist, uh, UC Davis, and the book, Can Legal Weed Win? Blunt Realities of Cannabis Economics. We have uh, talked a lot about shortages during the pandemic, like product shortages, worker shortages, especially in the service industry. Now there's a lifeguard shortage at public pools. A lot of pools have had to cut back hours this summer. Wyatt Warneth is a lifeguard instructor, trainer, and public service spokesperson for the American Lifeguard Association. Thank you so much for joining us. So how bad is it getting? Uh, what kind of percentage, uh, percentage of a shortage are we talking about? Hey, well, thanks for having me on the show. And, yes, we're considering this a critical lifeguard shortage like none we've ever seen. And we think mainly because of the pandemic, obviously, but we also experienced it because of the J-1 work visas where we would get exchange students over to fill the ranks, primarily from Russia and Ukraine, so the war's not helping. And then also the uh, competitive salaries that are out there. It's really tough to become a lifeguard and a lot easier to go to work at a retail store or restaurant when – you don't have to go through the training to make the same money. So we're we're being impacted by that. Can you do both ocean and pools, or does something make it different when it comes to pools? Well, you know, there, there's three types of lifeguarding, if you will. Um, there's the water parks that have the lazy river and the slides and things like that. Then you have the pools, and then you have open water. And they all three have very different training outlines, requirements, and standards. Um, so it, it can be intermixed, you know, to a degree. And I, let me say this, if you start with the lifeguarding and the open water, which we consider ocean rescue, and you go to the other ones, you're going to have to downtrain because you don't have to worry about the sharks and the open you know, hazards of, of Mother Nature. And then if you come from a pool or a park, you have to uptrain because now you got to learn a lot more about the environment. So there's a lot of difference in it. So while a lifeguard is training uh, to learn how to do the job, they're not getting paid at the time? Well, you're looking at different arenas at that as well. It seems that a lot of the pool areas uh, require the people, the, the candidates to go out and get a certification, Red Cross, American Lifeguard Association, and other ways of getting a lifeguard certification. And then you go and get the job at the uh, facility after you pay for your certification. Well, with the open water, a lot of the trend is more like, um, you know, it's the fourth service, really. You've got fire, police, EMS, and then lifeguarding. So you go and become a lifeguard, you make the qualification, which you don't get paid to go out and try out. But you do usually get paid, like at our agency, we paid you to go through the training. And then if you didn't make it, then, well, you just didn't make it the rest of the way and came back later. So there's a variety of ways that are doing it. I think what's getting impacted is the 309,000 
parks and pools that are only usually targeting the summer um, seasons in those colder regions. And what you're getting is, is seasonal employees, and they're the ones that are taking a hit. About a third of those are going to be either closed or downgrade on their coverage. Not so much the ocean side where we have warmer climates. Yeah, so we got a situation where all these pools can't open because they don't have the staff to do it and keep people safe. And, you know, it's it's funny because the city will try really hard. we got to get money for the pool, keep the pool open, and then all of a sudden, oh, wait, we don't have anyone to work at the pool, and now nobody can go. No, it's just a, it's a crying shame. You know, but it's always been tough to get lifeguards. I, you know, I get asked this a lot, like, you know, what, what was the success in the earlier years, especially when I started? We had Baywatch. Everybody wanted to live that lifestyle, you know, back in the 80s. And it was a trend. Imagine all the people who want to join the Navy now and become pilots because of Top Gun. Because of that Top Gun, of yeah. Is there an age limit for, like for lifeguarding? Like if someone is uh, sitting at home and they think, you know what, I, I can swim. I can pull somebody out if I find need to. Can, do you need to be 18 to be a lifeguard? Well, you know, again, that goes back to the different arenas of training, uh, open water versus the parks and pools. Um, yeah, in, in, the, in the professional environment, the open water, which you may know so much in California, you have to be 18 in most cases. You have to be like an adult, like getting a job to be a cop or anything else because uh, it's a career profession. But the summertime seasonal ones, I've seen it go down as low as uh, 16 years old. So it, it, it varies in those arenas. All right. So your basic pool lifeguard who's been doing the job for, let's say, three years, how much money is that person making? Oh, boy, now you're really talking something where it's a variable. Uh, you know, let me state this. I think that, you know, a lot of people are unaware that lifeguarding in its truest form came from the Coast Guard, uh, the Life Saving Service. And then it kind of spawned off and the Life Saving Service joined in with the Cutter Revenue and became the Coast Guard. And lifeguards kind of continued on as what we uh, know today, the, the sunblock on the nose and sitting up in the tower looking all good with the bronze chiseled bodies. And I think what's happened is uh, they've been overlooked as professionals. We are safeguarding your loved ones, your family members, you. And it's a very serious job where I think that the pay should be equivalent to the other services of EMS and first responder, cops, you know, firefighters and, and ambulances. It should be recognized in that, that manner so that we wouldn't have the problem we have today, I don't think, if it was more recognized as a professional career instead of a summer fun job it's serious you're watching lives Wyatt uh, Werneth is a lifeguard instructor trainer public service spokesperson American Lifeguard Association Wyatt thanks coming up a former White House lawyer under former President Trump has agreed to talk to the January 6th committee and uh, we'll look into whether Ukraine can put together some kind of offensive to stop Russia from taking complete control of the Donbass region right now major banks and investment firms have avoided disaster because of the current uh, cryptocurrency crash mostly because of safeguards put into place after 2008 the retail investors though have been hit hard now a team of researchers at USC has been trying to help combing through social media to look for pump and dump schemes with this is Fred Morstadter, research team lead at the USC Information Sciences Institute. Uh, Fred, thanks for being here. So, yeah, someone's always left holding the bag when there's a crash. And uh, a lot of people got hit with this one. Probably some of them got in late. Uh, but I imagine also a lot can be driven by seeing stuff on the Internet, right? There's somebody posting their success stories. There's screen grabs of, look what I got on Coinbase, and everybody jumps in. Um, but that's kind of a scheme to get you to jump in so you will buy so they can cash out. Uh, yeah, you got it right. I mean, uh, as you said, you know, not all of that hype is genuine. Uh, so one of the ways in which uh, these scammers operate is by, you know, capitalizing on that hype in uh, disingenuous ways. Uh, it's called the pump and dump 
scheme. So in pump and dump, what you do is you buy a security, you generate a whole bunch of uh, false hype around it, driving the price up. And once that price spikes, you sell and, as you said, leave a bunch of uh, you know, unwitting investors holding the bag. And that's exactly what we are trying to detect uh, with our computational approaches. So what we do is we monitor social media like Telegram and Twitter, um, where we look for these organized, organized groups trying to uh, pull off these pump and dump schemes. And we uh, alert people that these, uh, these pump and dumps are about to take place. It's do sort of an early warning scheme to or early, early warning system to uh, let them know that they might be duped. Are are you trying to tell us that there are people online who are trying to scam others? Shocked, I say. <laughs> is this shocked. really wow? It's <laughs> incredible. So, how hard is it to protect people from these schemes in cryptocurrency when the cryptocurrency world itself is so new that a lot of regulations and laws haven't caught up yet? Well, you're exactly right. So uh, pump and dumps are you know, very illegal uh, for traditional securities, but for things like uh, cryptocurrencies, they aren't uh, regulated yet. So you know, while this uh, isn't strictly illegal, it is uh, a bad thing to do, and we want to make sure that uh, potential investors have the most information before they buy uh, a, a particular cryptocurrency. Can you give me a few tells? Because everyone's anonymous on a forum. I mean, they're posting 16 emojis of a rocket ship saying, to the moon, and, and how do I know who's real and who's not? Well, that's exactly the thing, is in order to get this hype, uh, you have to have a large presence on social media. And that is exactly the Achilles heel that we look towards in identifying these pump and dump schemes. So these people have to organize online. And a big challenge in this research is identifying the Telegram channels where they're organizing these pump and dump attacks. Uh, You'll see uh, public Telegram channels uh, that aren't necessarily advertised that anyone can join, where these scammers organize and they plan the next uh, pump and dump attack. So our, uh, our, our models, what they do is they look for these types of messages, messages like, hey, we're going to pump this coin, uh, buy at this price, sell at that price, this kind of thing. And we surface it from, from Telegram uh, in order to you know, alert potential investors. So, you know, because it, it's so new. This is such a new thing. Is all you can do to protect people is just to warn them that uh, this group looks like a scam because the laws uh, can't do anything about it yet? Well, yeah, that's exactly right. So we're researchers, and we want to, uh, you know, we, we take we take the role of a, you know, public participant, potential uh, investor. Uh, there are certainly things that uh, the government could do to, uh, you know, regulate these things and punish, uh, you know, pump and dump scammers. Uh, but but that is not there, or you know, our purview. How wary of you are, are uh, are you of crypto in general? Though I'm just curious. I mean, Bitcoin and Ethereum are not once they what once they were. I mean, we saw the crash, but they're also not coins based on a meme that are worth like 0.16 cents what with five zeros in front of them either yeah that's right i mean when you say cryptocurrency you're really talking about 1600 plus different types of uh of coins right and some are more legitimate than others um you know the the big names are, i'm not too worried about and, and that's and that's why it's harder to pump and dump them is because they are the big names um it's harder to move the price on them but you're alluding to these coins that have very very you know low prices and low trading volumes those are the ones that are much easier to attack and that's what we see in our in our data, uh, the ones that are being attacked are these smaller coins. Fred Morstadter, research team lead at uh, USC, the Information Sciences Institute. Thinking maybe I should establish my own cryptocurrency, RobCoin. <laughs> the RobCoin. RobCoin, get into it now before it blows up. I'll take seven. 
You are listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer, in for Charles Feldman. Lots of people have been playing the blame game when it comes to inflation, even the president doing it, blaming Russia and Vladimir Putin. Some lawmakers are blaming corporate greed for it all, saying businesses are just raising prices because they simply want to make more money. But a few economists out there are pushing back on that idea. With us to explain is Alexander Tomich, uh, Associate Dean and Economist at Boston College. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's very easy to look at. I mean, even for me, I have to admit that we look at these companies, they're sitting on the biggest piles of cash in human history. They're paying their executives uh, bigger and bigger bonuses while hiring fewer people and paying out less and trying to cut back on benefits and keeping them from unionizing. So why is this not a problem caused by corporate greed? So... You, you know, it's great to be uh, in depth again. Uh, the way you put it is somewhat correct. Uh, that you know, the companies recently have actually been increasing wages. We just saw the the labor survey that just came out shows that the salaries were growing at about seven to eight percent. So corporations, you know, they are raising prices because simply people have more money and they are demanding more goods and they are willing to pay more. And people have more money because Fed has been incredibly loose uh, since the COVID, and so has the fiscal side of the house. So while corporations, you know, they are after profits, and they will do whatever they can to earn profits because that's their purpose in life, the increase in price is actually completely coming from the demand side. Has anything happened over the last uh, couple of years that's different over the decades before it? I mean, has it always been a pretty steady raising of the prices or have they tried to get away with some more of it because we have such rapid inflation so so let's be clear the inflation is the raising of the prices so the corporations have been raising prices because people have more money and they are chasing fewer goods right so that's how the inflation happened this time so what is different is that first of all the amount of money that was pumped into the economy following covid is unprecedented in history. It makes, you know, Great Recession pale by comparison. And that was done by Fed. And at this time, also, it was done more on the fiscal side. Number two, we have, you know, a lot of that money has gone to people, uh, which is, I think, actually a good thing. But a lot of that money has gone to people in form of, you know, the unemployment support, in form of various kinds of support, as opposed to the last time when it really went to corporations and they just sat on it. So all of this you know, increase the demand for goods. Then on the other side, you had the kind of slowdown in the supply chains, right? There is no capacity almost anywhere. You know, everybody is working full tilt. And some of that is going to be resolved because we see that, you know, there is a, there is just a huge jump in the manufacturing, uh, in the building of manufacturing plants in the United States. It's unprecedented because we are seeing that these concerns about politics outside of the United States, about supply chain, are making more people want to manufacture in the U.S. But that takes time. So what do we have? A bunch of money pumped into the, into the economy, given to people. People have money. They want to spend it. So they are chasing fewer goods because we are having shipping issues. We are having capacity issues and such. And the prices are rising. Because remember, corporations cannot pay you, cannot make you pay what they want you to pay. They can only sell it to you for what you are willing to pay. So corporations are benefiting, let's be clear, but they are not causing it. Yeah, you know, I think influx of money. I I think it's a good point because, uh, as I recall, when the gas prices, which are easing off now, when they were really super high, you know, of course, everybody complained, oh, oh my gosh, it's so high. This is unbelievable. How can we live like this? But then when I drove home that day, 
I passed by a gas station where there is a line of cars, and it was one of the higher priced gas stations too. It was over; uh, they were charging like uh, seven twenty five a gallon for regular. So, like people were willing to pay that money even while they're complaining about it. So that is part of the problem. You talk about supply chain issues, and I think this is a big part of it too. But my question is: Do some corporations have an incentive to not solve the supply chain crisis so quickly? Because while there is a crisis, they are charging more and is their profit margin increasing because of that so the profits are to be clear the corporate profits have increased very steadily from they have increased dramatically from the second quarter of 2020 but you know they increased very quickly when we realized that covid wasn't going to kill us all right and we kind of moved to uh, virtual you know, commerce and, and virtual work and such. So they very quickly came back to the pre-COVID levels and then they shut up again. But since for about a year now, they've been tapering off. Because even if you have the existing corporation, right, that says, okay, great, let me milk the situation for what it's worth, their competitors are always lurking on the sides to take advantage of the situation. If they could offer it at a lower price, they would. So, again, you know, unfortunately, what it is, they are benefiting from the situation. But what's driving the inflation, and please, if there is one message to send out there, inflation is very controllable. It takes taking the money out of the system. The problem is once you start controlling inflation right now, we would probably start seeing increases in unemployment and putting the economy, you know, we would have to slow down the economy. And that's that flip side of that medal. And that's why politicians are very, all of them, you know, whether it's the president or Congress or whoever, they are very hesitant to actually try to control inflation because we would see decrease in economic activity. We would see increase in unemployment rate. So they are now playing the blame game a little bit. And, you know, hopefully, you know, Fed will persist, but make no mistake, it's not a magic button somebody can push and have lower prices. These prices serve a very important uh, role in the economy, and they basically allocate resources, right? So there is only so much corporations can do, and of course, given a chance to make a profit, any corporation would make profit. So they are benefiting from the situation, but they are not causing it. Alexander Telmich, Associate Dean and Economist at Boston College. Well, a bad day for former President Trump when it comes to the investigations connected to the 2020 election. His former White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, has agreed to be interviewed Friday before the January 6th committee. This comes as a Rudy Giuliani, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham and five others were subpoenaed in the ongoing criminal investigation into Georgia election interference. Gene Rossi back with us, an attorney and former federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia. Gene, thank you. Let's start with uh, Mr. Cipollone because people were asking it before. Why isn't he being talked to? But especially after the testimony at the surprise hearing that was called, uh, he is in the room for a lot of what has been testified to. He's a guy who apparently says half of the poll quotes that have been all over the news. So um, do you think he holds a whole bunch of cards here? Oh, absolutely. And and here's why. I keep going back to Watergate. Uh, they initially called it a third-rate burglary, and the uh, Trump supporters and the people in the White House and Mr. Trump, President Trump, called it uh, basically a bunch of tourists. We're now moving away from that narrative, and back in the Watergate days, John Dean testified. And after he testified, he blew the roof off the house. And Pat Cipollone has the ability, we shall see, uh, to provide context, to provide some meat on the bones, 
and to give us some sense of to what a chaotic atmosphere it was in the White House on January 6th and the days before. And here's something that's important. Pat Cipollone, according to Cassidy Hutchinson, who testified a few days ago, uh, she quoted Mr. Cipollone saying, don't go to the Capitol, we'll all be charged. She also quoted him as saying to Meadows that people are going to die. That tells me that Pat Cipollone was aware that the individuals, not all of them, not all of them, but there were some individuals at that rally or near it that were armed and were determined to engage in possible violence. That takes it to a whole new level called sedition and insurrection. Now, as I understand it, uh, he's already sat down for an informal interview uh, with the committee, but uh, this one is going to be something a little bit more. Is he going to be under oath for this interview? Absolutely. He will not. He will be uh, videoed privately under oath, uh, subject to the pains and penalties of perjury. And I got to tell you this, when people are under oath, as someone who put a lot of people under oath, things change dramatically. It's not just some statement. Uh, and, and Mr. Cipollone has a lot of integrity. Uh, I think he's going to testify under oath. And uh, he's going to provide the committee, in my view, information that they didn't have with Cassidy Hutchinson. He's going to give us a little bit more about legal advice, things he heard, things he told. And privilege is out the window. We're at another level here. We're at the crime fraud uh, exception level. And um, he could be an explosive, possible John Dean-like uh, witness for the J6 committee. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about privilege, because that's been the whole thing since the last interview that they did have with him. He's saying, look, a lot of these conversations, it's executive privilege, I can't talk about it. How does the committee get around that? Easy. Donald Trump has not claimed executive privilege with any of the testimony by Barr, Donahue, Rosen, or any of those, and he hasn't claimed it for Pat Cipollone. That's number one. Number two, Donald Trump is a former president, last I looked, and the executive privilege uh, kind of washes away once you've left office. Uh, three, we're now in the realm of criminal investigation, insurrection, sedition, uh, fraud against the United States. So the crime fraud exception applies and, and, and tarnishes and eliminates the privilege. Um, the third thing is, Pat Cipollone may be subject or maybe serve with a grand jury subpoena. And, and, and now we're at a level where the Department of Justice, to me, is seriously looking at some of the things they revealed. So all those reasons point towards no invocation of the privilege and no successful defense against testimony uh, based on a privilege. Uh, we found out during the Russia investigation that the Department of Justice uh, was loath to recommend an indictment for a sitting president. Uh, Donald Trump is no longer the sitting president. He's a former president. But there are some people who believe that the uh, Department of Justice will not want to indict a presidential candidate. So now the race is on. And Donald Trump's already made uh, waves that uh, he might announce his uh, next run for president very soon, sometime this month even. When he announces he's running for president, does this keep him from being indicted? 
No, not at all. Being a candidate is a lot different than being in office. The Office of Legal, Legal Counsel, uh, wrongly, I believe, has concluded that a sitting president cannot be indicted. They can be sued civilly. President Bill Clinton was sued civilly, but they can't be indicted uh, for various reasons that I disagree with. Uh, what if the president of the United States murdered somebody in the White House? We're going to wait till he leaves office? No. But he's now a former president. So there's absolutely no policy memo or no uh, tradition that a former president cannot be indicted. But you have to you have to go and look at, you know, is it is it a crime or are there crimes that warrant indicting? If if President Trump cheated on his taxes or, you know, he committed a misdemeanor or a low level felony, um, that probably wouldn't be the case. He would be indicted. But we're talking about something very serious. The Twelfth Amendment was violated. The certification of ballots. It was the transition of power. I cannot think of a more paramount reason to charge sedition and insurrection than efforts allegedly to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. It's the heart and soul of our democracy. Gene Rossi, attorney and former federal prosecutor, Eastern District of Virginia. Gene, thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer, in for Charles Feldman. The man accused of killing seven people, hurting more than two dozen others at the 4th of July parade north of Chicago, brought his guns legally, bought them legally. This is despite police responding to a suicide attempt and also confiscating a collection of knives after family members reported that he wanted to, quote, kill everyone. Now, Illinois has a red flag law which would allow law enforcement to take a person's guns away or prevent them from buying one. But this man was able to slip through anyway. Mike Lawler is a criminal justice professor at the University of New Haven and author of the 1999 Connecticut Red Flag Law, which is uh, one of the first red flag gun laws in the country. Thank you so much for joining us. So how how did this happen? Uh, I understand police did have some interactions with him before. There were concerns about him. And yet he was able to go get these guns. What happened? Yeah, well, you can't imagine a situation where there was more red flags flying than this one, right? Between his social media posts, his suicide attempt, his statements to family and others that he wanted to kill a lot of people. I mean, these are exactly the types of things that these laws are designed to identify and give police the authority to take action. Um, It sounds like um, somebody dropped the ball in Illinois, that's for sure. Um, And it also seems like the Illinois law is sort of a hodgepodge of different rules governing um, under what circumstances you can be denied a permit to go buy guns, right? And so in this kid's case, those incidents we're describing happened prior to him actually having firearms. He acquired the firearms after the fact, apparently got a letter from his father saying he was a suitable person, and then he wasn't specifically barred from getting them. Uh, But he should have been. Under uh, many states' laws, including Connecticut's, there's no way this kid would have been able to legally go out and buy these types of weapons. Right, which is how we would hope they're designed, right? That no matter where in the timeline we are, is this prior to owning, is this while you're currently seeking, is this after, that there's a way to either stop or take him away. And the takeaway comes in when a family member asks, you know, hey, we have a concern about, you know, this person over here and we know they have a gun, do something. Yeah, I mean, the red flags really need to be permanent unless and until it's clear that you no longer pose an imminent threat. 
And and as I said, Illinois seems to have this convoluted system with different jurisdictions having different roles to play. Uh, in some states like mine here in Connecticut, it's it's a universal system. It's a it's a streamlined, one-stop shopping type process where it would be almost impossible to navigate with a track record like this kid had. Yeah. Let alone the fact he could, he couldn't buy these weapons legally in the first place in Connecticut, but he wouldn't be able to buy any weapon, actually. Yeah, when they were questioned at one of these news conferences, they said, okay, well, after the one incident in 2019, I think it was, they, they, they closed the case a little bit while later because, you know, although that was the red flag, he wasn't currently looking for a weapon then. It only happened three years later. So they thought, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll shut the door on this one. Well, it, it's, it's from the way it's being described, it sounds like uh, the local police reported all the things they should have reported. It just didn't pop up on the state police radar in a way that would deny the kid from getting the permit that he would need in Illinois to buy these firearms. Right. So that's that's where the ball seems to have been dropped. And it, it just seems like the mechanisms they have there don't really anticipate this type of sequence. Right. But um, anyway. Is there any appetite in Illinois to strengthen these laws and close these loopholes and, and streamline the system? I know because now there's a concern that the Supreme Court has signaled that it's going to take a look at gun laws. And uh, then there's the reaction of uh, some politicians who every time there's a mass shooting, there are more and more of them. They say, well, the last thing we want to do is strengthen gun laws now. Uh, so is there appetite to do this in Illinois? I'm sure they're going to do something. I mean, after every single one of these tragedies, uh, states, red states and blue states have taken action. Look at Florida, right? After the Parkland uh, high school shooting, Florida passed their, their own red flag law, and it was used pretty aggressively by police from day one. Um, so the other thing, you know, the the, uh, the bipartisan safety bill that just passed in Congress includes a lot of money, not just for identifying and dealing with mental health issues like this kid clearly had, but also training for law enforcement about what to do when they get these kinds of reports. And I think as part of that, there's going to be a greater awareness on the part of law enforcement about what red flags really are and what they should do when they're reported to them. And at the same time, reaching out to the, the health care providers, including the mental health providers and just citizens in general, they understand if they see something, they really should say something. And, and it's those two factors which seem to, uh, uh, to, to be the key to success for these laws. Mike Lawler, criminal justice professor, University of New Haven, author of the 1999 Connecticut Red Flag Gun Law, which was the first of its kind in the country. This is KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Rob Archer today. He's in for Charles Feldman. Russia is now working to uh, secure the entire Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. Russian forces have taken complete control over one of the provinces and are now focusing on one city where the mayor has urged civilians to get out as quickly as possible. If Russia succeeds in controlling the Donbass, what does it do next in Ukraine? John Spencer, retired U.S. Army major and chair of urban warfare studies at the Madison Policy Forum, also has the book Connected Soldiers, Life, Leadership, and Social Connections in Modern War. Uh, John, thanks for being with us. So can you paint us a picture of how you see the fight right now and what's been taken, what hasn't been? Heavy tolls for Russia to get what it has. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the Donbass is a is a region of eastern Ukraine that really consists of these two big provinces or oblasts, or you think for us like counties. One is Luhansk and one is Donetsk. Uh, the Russians, unfortunately, have taken control of all of Luhansk now because they just recently overtook a city called Severodonetsk and now Lysychansk, 
but they paid over 5,000 plus soldiers in order to take those two cities. Uh, and the Ukrainians fought smartly, didn't lose that, that, that number and pulled back, um, pulled back to save their personnel, pulled back across the Severodonsk River. Um, now, basically, what you have is the Russians in control that those two major cities in all of this northern province. And so now they have their targets on the rest of the southern province of Donetsk, which has a bunch of you know three other major cities that are really important to the Ukrainians, like critical crossroads. But they also the Ukrainians have been there for a long time and are in a, you know in defensive positions there. So it's almost you haven't you almost see a a, a stalling of the operation now. The Russians have achieved a small tactical win. The Ukrainians pull back, trying to hold time. I was going to ask how, uh, in your view, how overextended are Russian troops right now? Because, you know, it, it cost them many troops to take over these areas. And it's not like that all those soldiers who survived can now move on to fight somewhere else. You've got to leave personnel behind to maintain control because I understand there's some civil disobedience in these regions. They have to control that. So does that leave them too overextended to make any further gains? Um, No, unfortunately, I wish that was true. And they are facing resistance. And actually, the southern portion of Ukraine that doesn't get talked about as much in Harrison, there is... Um, civil disobedience happening. There's Ukrainians pressing against them. It's a real possibility of Ukrainian advances in that southern city of Harrison. Uh, but in the, this area, that Donbass, the Russians have really dumped everything they have, which is a lot of, you know, it's 100,000 plus soldiers, a lot of force still. Now, we're, we're getting, you know, lots of communications, just like we were in the beginning. Now, soldiers refusing to fight. The morale is low. But you do have these pockets of um, even you, whether you consider them Russian Chechens and other forces um, that that are that have achieved these victories. I wouldn't say they're overstretched yet. Um, and, and let's be honest, the Ukrainians in this in this part of the fight are outnumbered by a lot, like ten to one, and outgunned. Despite the massive amounts of weapons they've been given, it hasn't been enough. For Ukraine, then, realistically, is it just hold that line or can they, you know, and the president would love to, but can they actually take this territory back if they were to push back at the Russian forces? Yeah, so time's not on the Russian side. I, I, I will give the Ukrainians that. The Ukrainians aren't running out of soldiers. They have the will to fight. There's a some timeline that will run out for the Russians and the supplies that have been promised to Ukraine, like we gave them four of these massive systems that immediately, as soon as these four multiple launch rocket systems that the U, that we gave them, which is what they've been asking for for months, as soon as it got to the battlefield, it's having immediate results because it's these long range rockets that they need. Now we have four more on the way, but they need they need like fifty of those to be able to 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 make up for the differences that they don't have in the numbers. But no, I don't think the the Ukrainians have the time, and I don't think that. They've already said they're not going to negotiate away the Donbass. So if anybody thinks that the Russians are just going to take the Donbass and then, you know, like they did, you know, portions of Crimea and other places in, in the in the Ukraine, like, okay, fine, that's where you're going to stop. We've learned from evil people that they never stop. So I don't think the Russians would stop at Donbass. I want to go outside the box a little bit and ask about uh, a few years ago, uh, Russia basically uh, pulled this tactic in Georgia. 
and uh, it, they seem to have pacified that area well enough. Are they applying, or do they want to apply the lessons they learned there to the eastern part of Ukraine? And how different is the situation? How different is the will of the Ukrainian people to fight back? Yeah, so that's, you know, I just got back actually from Kiev about two weeks ago. Um, I didn't, you know, so the Russians were successful in this gray zone war where they, they, you know, basically cause political dissent within the population and, and get enough of the population um, to do really an internal struggle. They have not been able to do that in any parts of the Ukraine, even in occupied areas that they own at this point. Um, the, the Ukrainians will not stop fighting. I, I don't see that. Everybody I met was ready to fight, was moving to the fight, and the Ukrainians are forming new battalions. It's just a, you know, it's a training and it's a weapons issue. It's not a will to fight. I don't see the Ukrainians stopping anytime soon. What was it like when you were in Kiev? I mean, it must be surreal. Nations at war, but people around kind of going about their days. Yeah, with sirens going off every day. They found, I was in Bucha and they found seven more bodies the next day, that I, the day after I was there. Um, it was very real to them. And I actually, they're actually suffering even while they're trying. I mean, they, you can't even get gas in the country because Russia struck kind of the infrastructure. Uh, but everybody, it seemed like I've never, you know, I've been around the world and I've been in my own combat zones. I've never met such a population, an entire country on a war footing. Um, and even though they're, you know, you see kids playing and people trying to get about their business, you felt that the country was at war. That's John Spencer, retired U.S. Army major, chair of Urban Warfare Studies, the Madison Policy Forum. And he has the book, Connected Soldiers, Life, Leadership and Social Connections in Modern War. John, thanks. That's in-depth for today. We will be back tomorrow 